How many know that climbing a 14er in Colorado is kind of a big deal, right? How many have ever done one before? You've, you've done a 14er. I thought there would be a lot more than that. Lift your hands high. All right. Wow. Okay. I thought we were a little more active than that, church. <laughs> um, so I was thinking about that this, this week, and I got some pictures of like three of the more big uh, peaks, the summits of these 14ers in Colorado. The first one I'll put a, put a picture up. That's Mount Lincoln in Buena Vista. Anyone ever done that one? We're far from Buena Vista. I understand that. How about this next one is Torrey's Peak. Anybody ever done that one? I thought that one's kind of like up by Georgetown-ish, right? No one's ever done that. Keegan. Keegan, all right. I was about to go going once, going twice. Okay. Lastly, Mount Elbert. Mount Elbert. Anybody ever done that one? Keegan, right on. Okay. If you, everything you need to know about a 14er, see Keegan back in the AV booth, obviously. I have a confession to make. I've lived in Colorado all my life. I've never done a 14er. All right. Well, I know now that a lot of people haven't done it here. I thought I was going to be all guilty, but we're all lazy. No, I'm just kidding. But here's what I do know I've done. And I say this with humility. I have read and studied the book of Romans for the last 30 one years. Heavy. It's, it's my favorite book, I think, besides the Gospel of John in the New Testament. And uh, we're in a series on the book of Romans called Not Ashamed. Paul says in chapter 1 that he's not ashamed of the gospel. Because of it, it's the power of God unto salvation. So we're not ashamed of the good news of Jesus. And so we've been trekking through the first eight chapters of Romans. And if you were here uh, the last two Sundays, did Kristen just do a great job teaching us? We were supposed to be in Israel, so her and I planned the whole sermon calendar around that. And I got to hear both of the messages, and it was wonderful. So Romans 9, 10, and 11 are what I would call the summit of the book of Romans. It, it peaks. You climb all the way up through the first eight chapters, and then 9, 10, and 11, you're at, at the peak, so to speak. And I've been asking for prayer all week from folks because this is the deep end of the pool, like when it comes to these three chapters. So if you're new to the Bible, try not to get too caught up in, in big words and things like that, but hear the heart of what the Apostle Paul has to say on his amazing deep dive in his understanding of the gospel. That's what Romans is about. He wrote it to the church in Rome where there were believers, a church that was in Rome. Paul had never been there, but he was writing them. And I think he gets to this chapter 9, 10, and 11 because maybe the church or the, 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 both the Jews and the non-Jews started thinking that maybe God was done with the, the Hebrew people. And so he takes this turn gets in a new lane in chapter 9 and begins to talk about his fellow kinsmen. Chapters 12 through 16, which will be in in a few weeks, becomes very practical on the other side of the mountain, so to speak, where he talks about how to get along with one another in light of the gospel, how to get along in society, 
how to take care of, of one another. But in 9, 10, and 11, he talks about the role of the Jewish people in God's <clears throat> plan for salvation, for our salvation and theirs. And in chapter 11, Paul uses this illustration of the olive tree. And he says that the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, are, are the olive tree. And we, as non-Jewish people, were grafted in to this olive tree. And that the roots of the olive tree are the, the Hebrew people and all, what God had done for thousands of years in and through His covenant with them. And thus, I've titled this little mini-series on 9, 10, and 11, Our Roots and Our Salvation Today. Next week will be Our Roots and Our Mission. And then the last one will be Our Roots and Our Completion. But I wanted to show you this picture. This is a picture of an olive tree that we took in 2019 in the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is just at the base of the Mount of Olives. The Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus was praying and ultimately arrested. That tree is 2,000 years old. Jesus would have been physically around that tree. Isn't that a trip? Still producing fruit, still has, um, still has life 2,000 years later. Um, take a wet my whistle here. Ah, there you go. That's my new thing. Um, Paul himself was Jewish. He was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was a Pharisee. He was raised in Hebrew culture. Um, Jesus obviously was Jewish, right? Jesus was Jewish. The twelve disciples were Jewish. The early church was all Jewish. Jesus told them to go into be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So early on in the book of Acts, it's all Jewish people in Jerusalem coming to know Jesus through the gospel. Our roots are Jewish. That's what I want you to remember this morning. Our roots are Jewish. In the book of Genesis, this isn't in your notes, but in the book of Genesis, the first 11 chapters are God's dealing with ancient humanity. And in chapter 12, all of a sudden we see this man named Abram get a calling from God that he was going to make a, a nation out of just him and his wife and their offspring was going to make a nation. It says, Genesis 12, 1 through 3, now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in all the families, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Paul in Romans 9 has the story of Abraham and Sarah in mind a lot about the, the miracle that happened through them. They were blessed to be a blessing. You've been blessed to be a blessing. You've been blessed so that you can keep passing that blessing on. The Jewish people have had a huge impact on society over you know, many, many thousands of years. But even in some modern day like things, I don't know if you knew this or not, but some of their, the Jewish people's accomplishments and inventions. Who's wearing jeans right now? You can thank a Jewish person. They invented 
what we know as blue jeans. How about a, uh, if you're taking notes, a ballpoint pen? You can thank your Jewish brother or sister for that. How many used a TV remote last night watching college football? I did. I wanted to turn the CU game off at times. But you use a remote, Jewish person invented the TV remote. If you've ever taken an aspirin for pain, Jewish people invented aspirin. It gets even bigger. Polio vaccine was invented by, was discovered by a Jewish person. Chemotherapy to treat cancer was invented uh, by an Israeli. We have in our cafe a defibrillator, preferably during the chili cook-off or ever. We never have to use that, but the, a Jewish person uh, invented the defibrillator. We can thank them for that. How many have ever been on the Google? You've searched the Google? You can thank some Jewish people who invented the Google. <laughs> But here's the most important thing we can thank the Jews for. And it's what Jesus said in John chapter 4. He said, salvation is from the Jews. He told the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. Our Messiah, our Savior, is Jewish. He's a Jewish Messiah that became the Messiah of the whole world. So I've taken this chapter 9 and I've broke it down in three headings about the Hebrew people and how our roots and our salvation come from the Jewish people. And the first one is this. If you take a note, the calling of the Hebrew people. The calling of the Hebrew people. They were blessed to be a blessing. Their calling was to be a blessing. You ever read through the Gospels and you read through the genealogy of Jesus? right? Sometimes that's, you skip over that, right? How many, honestly, you skip over that because that's pretty boring? Don't skip over it. There's actually a reason that it's there in the gospel of Luke. Luke was Greek, so he wasn't Jewish. But when he goes through the genealogy of Jesus, he goes, traces the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam and Eve. When you see in Matthew's gospel, he traces the genealogy of Jesus Uh, back to Abraham. That's why the Jews call him Father Abraham. And we, because of our roots, can also call him Father Abraham. Here's what Paul starts out with. I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my countrymen, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons and daughters, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is overall God-blessed forever. Amen. Now, Paul is lamenting the rejection of his fellow kinsmen for the mo- who, for the most part, could not see Jesus as the Christ. They could not see him as the Messiah. And why is that? Well, they were, over the thousands of years, there was a, they, they created traditions and things that were outside of the law of God. They were kind of going in their own lane, and they expected the Messiah to come as a general 
like David, who was going to be a man of war, and he was going to make Israel great again. He was going to overthrow the, the, the tyranny of the Roman Empire. That's why they couldn't see him, because Jesus came, right? He came humble and meek, and he had a different message than that of, of war and a different mission. Jesus came to overthrow our humanity's real enemies of sin, death, and the evil one. And he did that through his life, death, and resurrection. He submitted himself to death so that he could rise again, so that when you and I die, and we put our faith, hope, and trust in him, death just becomes a doorway into his presence. God, through Abraham, called the Hebrew people to be his covenant people. He was making a covenant with them. Now, why? Why? God's not a racist. So they're not a superior race of people because God made a covenant with them. They even understood this in the books of Moses and in Deuteronomy, that they weren't chosen because that there was something special about them. They were chosen out of God's divine choice and God's divine plan to ultimately bless the whole world through the Messiah. So remember, the line of Abraham is the line to Jesus who came to be Israel's Messiah as well as the rest of the world. When you look at the calling of of the Jewish people when it comes to the law of Moses, the law of Moses is, Paul even says, it's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with the law. We just know now through Jesus looking backwards that we don't stop there, that Jesus came to fulfill the law. But the law of Moses at the time it was given, was actually really good. It ordered society in a pagan world where anything went and just all the the gross stuff that was going on in the world, the law actually ordered society. And it also set them apart as the Hebrew people from the rest of the world. So they had this calling. Then Paul shifts gears and he begins to talk about the failing of the Hebrew people. The failing of the Hebrew people. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. Let me stop there for a second. You can leave that up on the screen. What he's saying is you're not a true Jew or Hebrew just because you're born with Hebrew flesh and blood. That's what he's saying. You're not, you are a, become a true uh, Israelite when you have circumcision of the heart. When you put your faith in God, the God of the covenant, the God of Abraham, and you live out in obedience to this God out of love for him, not out of duty or trying to use the law as a ladder to get to God, but to realize you show love for God as you put into practice what he says to do. Let me give you an example. The early church, after the the book of Acts, for like the next three or 400 years, up to about 400 AD, I, I believe as I read the church fathers and church history, was probably the most pure time of the church in many ways. And the reason is, the church did not have any affiliation with a political party or a nation. The, the, the early Christians were just Christians who were persecuted by everybody. They weren't affiliated with a political party or a nation or anything like that. 
And around 400 AD, Emperor Constantine, who was the Roman emperor at the time, he adopted Christianity as the religion of the Roman Empire, thus births what we call Christendom. And Christendom meant and means that if you're born in a Christian nation or in the Roman Empire, when Christianity is the religion, you're born into that. It doesn't matter like your faith or your heart or anything like that on the individual level. You're part of Christendom. That's Paul's point here, is just because you're a descendant excuse me, from the Hebrew line doesn't make you one inwardly. We know that to be true. You're not a Christian because your mom and dad were Christians. It has influence, obviously, but you're not a believer because grandpa and grandma were were Christians. It's an individual thing that has to happen in each one of our lives to say yes to Jesus and who He is. Let me continue. He says, but through Isaac, he's quoting the story in Genesis, but through Isaac, this is the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, shall be named. That, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. And he's going back to what God said to Abraham. At this time, I will come and Sarah will have a son. If you remember, they were old age. They were like 90 to 100 years old. Picture a hundred-year-old conceiving a child. That's—I mean, didn't mean to TMI there, but I mean that the re, the reality is like that takes a miracle, right? That's what they're saying. My bad. You can't get that image washed out of your mind, can you? And not only that, but there was also Rebecca when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For through the for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to His choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of Him who calls it, was said to to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. Now before we misunderstand Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, that, that word hate is not a great translation going from Hebrew or Greek into English. But Keep in mind, this is, he's quoting the prophet Malachi, who was a long time after Jacob and Esau prophesying. And what Malachi means in this Jacob I've loved, Esau I've hated, he's talking not about the individual Jacob or the individual Esau, he's talking about nations. He's talking about the nation that was going to come from Jacob and versus the nation that would come from Esau. Hated Really, I mean, it's, it's more of a favor. God chose to show favor in this instance to Jacob over Esau. So when it comes to the failing of the Hebrew people, it's not indiv- all, all individuals. It was as a whole. They didn't keep their end of the covenant. They didn't trust God. And that's, that's Paul's whole point here is Israel as a people did not keep their end of the covenant. You read throughout the Old Testament is basically the failing of the Hebrew people to keep the covenant that God made with them. Over and over and over, it was idolatry, foreign gods, all kinds of failings there where God, what's the very first commandment in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. And yet 
they perpetuated that over and over and over. But their story is no different than Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve were told, hey, steward this garden. You can eat of any tree. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They got duped by the serpent to believe that God can't trust God's word and that he wasn't good. They failed. And then you see Noah, even after the flood, he failed. You see Abraham, he was a great man and had a great calling, but he had his own failings. It's one thing I know why I can trust the Bible is the people God uses are failures like me. People who, who miss the mark often. David, he gets called to be the king of Israel, right? And Israel's peaking. And then David has a really, really bad day. And he commits adultery and murder. And his whole line of family after that were really messed up after David's failings. And then Solomon, his son, takes the kingdom of Israel to its peak. Seems like the new Eden. This is it. And then he couldn't, uh, couldn't keep himself away from the ladies. And he ended up worshiping their gods through it all. Here's the deal. I, we've all failed. We're all Israel. We are all people who need a Messiah who need a Savior. Gratefully, mercy triumphs over judgment. And our God is a God of mercy. And His mercy endures forever. Then the last point Paul shifts here from the calling then to the failing of the Hebrew people, and then the next few weeks we'll see deeper dive into this, is the restoring of the Hebrew people and the restoring of all people. You can put that up on the screen. The the restoring of the Hebrew people and the restoring of all people. That's what the whole rest of chapter 9 is. And I'm not going to read all that for you, but it's a begin to... to, He asks the question, has God forsaken His his covenant people, the Jews? He says, no, not at all. I'm, I'm Jewish, he says. In our title verse, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I don't always teach out of use the message. I don't recommend that that be your sole version of Scripture to read in your own devotional life. But sometimes the message can be super helpful in understanding or kind of highlighting things in Scripture. And that Romans chapter 1, verse 16 says, It's news I'm most proud to proclaim. This extraordinary message of God's powerful plan to rescue everyone who trusts Him, starting with the Jews and then right on to everyone else. So God had a plan to restore the Hebrew people, which ultimately was a restoration to the whole world. For God so loved the world. We just sang it. that He gave His one and only Son. He didn't say, Jesus didn't say, for God so loved the Jews. He said the whole world. God always had that plan to rescue humanity all who would place their faith in Him. In Galatians 3.8, Paul puts it this way. He says, It was all laid out beforehand in Scripture that God would set things right with non-Jews by faith. Scripture anticipated this in the promise to Abraham, all nations will be blessed by you. Paul actually says that when God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 12, that he was going to bless all the nations through him and his, his offspring, he was preaching the gospel. The gospel was in Gen- Genesis 12 that spread to all, was going to spread to all people, our roots and our salvation. 
I'm going to give four quick points about our salvation and how Paul tells us how we should understand it. And the first one is this. Salvation is based on grace, not race. God's not a racist, for God so loved the world. He says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. In other words, just because of your race as a, as a Hebrew, you don't get a free pass in this whole deal. Just because of, of your race. That's, you know, that's not how God was working this. And I was, as I was praying through this, it hit me. The gospel is the true and only cure for racism. If you struggle with racism, you need to take a look at the gospel. That God loves humanity. He loved humanity so much that He gave His only Son. And I get it. It's hard to look at what people do sometimes. What's going on in the world. And we think, man, ooh, they're my enemies. Well, Jesus said to love your enemies. How do you do that? Like TJ and I were talking before service. As followers of Jesus, we're stuck in a tough spot to love our enemies and to be a blessing in this crazy world. It's, that's hard to do. But the book of Revelation says that every tribe, every tongue, every nation is going to be around the throne of God when it's all said and done. Peter, the apostle, had to learn to not be a racist. You see it in the book of Acts. Um, and I don't mean, when you think of racism, that's a, it's, it's thinking your race is superior, and thus you look down on another race of people. And we can do that race, social ways, all kinds of things. But in the book of Acts, the gospel was going to Jerusalem. And so Jewish people were coming, becoming followers of Jesus. Then in Acts chapter 10, this bizarre thing happens. Peter had a vision of a sheet that came down in front of him. And on that sheet was all the unclean animals from the book of Leviticus that the Jewish people were not to eat. And all of a sudden he hears a voice that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. And if it was a speed metal song, it would have been rise, look at Peter, all the meat, rise, Peter, kill and eat. I wrote that. <laughs> you like that, huh? Appreciate it. I'll be here all week. Um, but no, what a bizarre thing. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And what does Peter say? Lord, I've, I'm not going to do that. I've never eaten anything unclean. I'm a good Jew. We don't eat what those pagans eat. And the Lord said to Peter, do not call unclean what I have made clean. And Peter got an aha moment. And in the same chapter, he goes to a group of the house of uh, Cornelius. There's a bunch of Gentiles there who hear the gospel and the Holy Spirit falls on them and he realizes, wow, this isn't just for the Jewish people. This is for everyone, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Second point, salvation is based on God's promise, not our preference. It's based upon His promise, not our preference. He says that, that is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. 
But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants, for this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. He made a promise to Abraham and Sarah that they in their old age were going to have a son. And that was ultimately Isaac. We are children of the promise to Abraham, you and I. If you have faith in Jesus, you are a child of that promise. It seemed up, the perception up till, till the book of Acts was this was just a Jewish thing. And he's saying, no, this is a heart thing for all of humanity. God had a plan of restoring the world through the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews through the Jewish Messiah, whose name is Jesus. His Hebrew name is Yeshua. <laughs> Jesus' name, Yeshua, means God's salvation. That's what his name literally means. He shall be called Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then thirdly, salvation is based upon God's providence, not our performance. We get on this hamster wheel of performing for God. And we think, our, do our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds? My good thoughts outweigh my bad thoughts. And we get on a, a spinning wheel of that. And salvation's not based upon our performance. It's based upon Jesus and what He did for us. God provided your salvation, and it's based upon Jesus, not us. Your performance or failings cannot add or subtract to the finished work of Jesus. It is what it is. It will produce in us, as we follow Him, it will produce a change and a transformation of our minds and our heart and our actions. But that comes incrementally is that's called sanctification important to remember that and then this is a kind of the same point but salvation is based upon god's mercy not our merit not our merit we don't merit salvation god desired to be merciful paul says this in this chapter what shall we say then there is no injustice with god is there far from it for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I have mercy, and I will show compassion to whomever I show compassion. So then it does not depend on the person who wants it, nor the one who runs it, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very reason I raised you up in order to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. This is deep stuff. I get it. I probably should have handed out arm floaties for everyone as you came in, as we jump into the deep end of the pool, right? I actually tried to find that, and this time of year no one had any arm floaties at King Supers. But here's how I want to bring this to a head. And if you can just focus in, on this this is important salvation comes from agreeing with jesus that he is creator and savior and lord of all we don't make him savior and lord he already is that faith is saying jesus i agree with you that you're my savior and you are my lord and I'm putting my hope in you. And I would ask the question to all of us, in person or online, 
Have you done that? Do you know that you know that your hope is in Jesus? And it's, it's imperfect. All of our faith is, is imperfect. But there's that step where we say, Jesus, I'm yours. And I want to walk with you. And I, I agree with you that you are Lord and Savior. Just this past, um, whatever day, the 26th of October was, um, was my 31st spiritual birthday. 31 years ago, October 26, 1992, I came into agreement with Jesus of who he was. And I by far have not had a perfect walk, but I'm also not looking back. Because where are we going to go? He holds the words to eternal life. We have nowhere else to go. And so we're with him and we walk with him. And I'll never forget that day that I put my faith in, in, in Jesus because I was far, far from following Jesus. And it changed my life. And it's changed many of your lives. I was talking with our daughter Chandler about that on the day of my spiritual birthday. She was like, I don't have a day like that. I just kind of always walked with Jesus all her life. Great. That's the best testimony. If you don't have a day to remember like I do, and you just have always were raised by, in, in church with your family and been a believer in Jesus, that's the best testimony there is doesn't mean you're not going to have a rocky road or any of that, that you don't have your ups and downs. But put your hope in Jesus. He won't let you down. Do that today. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders and the Pharisees for their treatment of John the Baptist. And he talks about what John the Baptist's role was. And he's rebuking them hard. Every time Jesus gave a hard word, it wasn't to the sinners. It was to the ones who thought they were perfect because of, of their own fit box they had put God in. And then all of a sudden, Jesus, after he rebukes them, he turns to the crowd that was standing there listening to this. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened and heavy laden. He said, take my yoke upon you because my yoke is easy and my burden is light, you'll find rest for your souls. Well, this past week, I, I discovered what that word yoke really means. Jesus wasn't the first rabbi to call disciples to follow him. There were several, you know, tons of rabbis that had followers. He wasn't doing anything out of the ordinary. But the word yoke meant to take on the yoke of your rabbi meant to take on your rabbi's interpretation of life and of scripture. Each rabbi had a differing view when it came to interpreting the Hebrew Bible and interpreting life, right? And when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, he's saying, take my interpretation of life and scripture. Use me as your hermeneutic or your means of how you're going to interpret some of these difficult passages of Scripture. When Scripture doesn't make sense, look to me. Take my yoke. I'm gentle. My burden is light. And so when we take on His yoke, it, it, it shouldn't be, feel like a burden to you. You haven't taken on the yoke of Jesus if we're struggling to believe that God really loves you or that you've done enough, or any of this. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. 
That was a game changer when I was discovered that this week. Let's stand together. And if you've never taken on the yoke of Jesus, maybe today is the day to say, Jesus, I want you as my Lord, Savior, and Rabbi, because He is our Rabbi. He interprets life and He interprets Scripture for us. And we allow Him to do that. It'll change your life. It's not going to make everything perfect and all your problems aren't going to go away. But you will live in His understanding of what your life is about and the people around you. And you'll understand purpose. You'll understand His power. You'll understand His humility and ultimately His love and salvation. Lord, as we close our worship time this morning, may our lives continue to be an act of worship. Lord, I know there's many burdened in here today. Lord, I know this is, uh, this is heavy portions of Scripture. I pray that uh, you'd, you would seal in our hearts truth. It's from you because you are the truth. And God, I pray for those that are burdened this morning, physically that you would bring healing and comfort. Those that are burdened financially, there would be a breakthrough. God, those that are burdened relationally, there would be forgiveness and reconciliation and hope. And Lord, we just look to you today as the author and finisher of our faith. Thank you that you are our salvation. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um.